are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Ambient. Post-minimal. Searching. Michael James Olson is an artist and performer who uses electronic music, video, guitar, and Tibetan singing bowls to create lush, ambient landscapes. Michael's work draws heavily on life in the upper Midwest. Open spaces, gray skies, beautiful lakes, and dramatic seasons. Michael's first solo album, What Comes After, fuses these narrative elements with reverb-laden guitar loops, ebo, electronic processing, ambient beats, and video to create a vibrant, abstract terrain. Michael tours frequently throughout the U.S. and currently serves as assistant professor of music at Minnesota State University. Well, thanks for doing this, Michael. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, we're going to talk about three of your pieces today, and both of them involve electronics in some way. So I wanted to just start out by asking you, you know, how and when did you get into using electronics? Um, I think from a compositional standpoint, um, that was pretty much the way I came into composing art music. You know, I came from a, you know, sort of a pop music and commercial background. Um, and then when that sort of creative process ended for me and I was looking for something else, um, technology was always going to be a really important part of what I was going to make next. Um, so I didn't, you know, writing purely acoustic pieces kind of came last. That was sort of the, the last place that I stopped um, or that I've uh, worked to do. Um, everything else has had technology in some form or fashion, either video or electronics or fixed media or whatever, um, as kind of a primary component of the work. So let's start with your piece before reminiscence. Uh, when did you when did you write this piece? That was 2012. I think that's my last tape piece that I've written and probably will ever write. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Why Why do you say that? Um, well, for me as a medium, it's not super compelling. Um, I don't want to, you know, as a performance thing, I don't really want to sit in a concert hall and listen to a bunch of fixed media pieces. Um, you know, it's a, it's great to take a nap to that kind of thing, but it's not a really compelling way to present work. Yeah, I know a lot of a lot of people disagree with that, and that's fine. There's uh, room in the field for everyone, even someone like me. Um, but that piece, right, was uh, written when I was a doctoral student at Ball State, and the goal really was um, to write something that could. I mean, this is what Mike Pounds, my professor at the time. Um, Set of the goals, like to win something that, or write something that could, uh, you know, win that Seamus award. Right, right, right. And uh, you know, it was a finalist for that award. We didn't win ultimately, but that was sort of the goal. And uh, for me, that kind of medium was is really heavily based around craft. Mm -hmm. Like people really do, um, you know, people who are really good at it. And there are a lot of people who are really good at writing tape pieces. Um, you know, it's it's a very serious sort of, um, you know, sound craft process they're really into the the detail the sound files and getting them all together um and that's just not my speed so i kind of i put it in there because i think it's interesting to talk about um it's a departure so everything that comes after that piece is sort of me saying okay well this is where the, you know a lot of electroacoustic music is and this isn't where i am or where i'm going um and so it's a kind of a point of radical departure mm-hmm yeah, I mean, I think that I, I've I've had several composers on recently who are working primarily with electronic music and particularly acousmatic music, and I mean, you you brought up some some of the issues that I feel are that that acousmatic music has. As a presentation medium, you know, you're sitting in a dark room, it's kind of boring. Like, I I do have those acousmatic pieces that I really, really like. Mm -hmm. But in general, it's it's not the most compelling thing in the world. And I was actually going to ask you, like, why, you know, you know, every acousmatic piece that I've ever done has had some outside impetus for doing it. Either it was for a class or for a project or I was working with another artist or or dancer in some way. And I was just like, it seems like this one was a class for you. Is that right? 
Yeah, and I think, you know, my experience in composition studies as a student, kind of all the way through, has been that, um, you know, you have some freedom to write what you want to write and pursue your trajectory, but you also don't have a lot of freedom, right? You are yeah. kind of, uh, you know, you, you work for the best fit, you go to the places where the best fit is, and then you're kind of on a trajectory that your, you know, composition professors and faculty and cohort are kind of on with you. And, you know, not just as a, uh, a composition student and now a professor of that, um, but as a field, that's a real problem. Uh, because we, we put people into these boxes of like, what can acousmatic music be? You know, it has its own very limited sort of uh, aesthetic criterion that make up acousmatic music. And, you know, you follow those kinds of trajectories, you kind of go in, uh, you know, on those well-trodden paths. And, uh, you know, you may or may not end up in a place that's really compelling for you. And I think for me, you know, there's a, there's a lot of baggage now that comes with, like this is, I've been in the field 10 years and as I've said to many people, like I go to the same concert mm-hmm. at multiple festivals all the time. And I know I'm not the only one to complain about this. Lots of people complain about it, mostly over beers, mostly after (laughs) listening to 10 concerts in a row. But it's a real problem. Um, And so I don't know what the solution to that is. You know, for me, it's a a departure and sort of a rejection of the electroacoustic aesthetic. Like, I'm not interested in that. My students aren't interested in that. And so as I write a piece, to kind of bring this back full circle, to not make it too rambly, um, when I write a piece like Before Reminiscence, um, as, you know, kind of under the impetus of, you know, the, the composition faculty and kind of going in that direction, you know, it's, it's loaded with all of those acousmatic, you know, signposts and sort of normative structures um, mm-hmm. that we come to expect with things. Um, and it really pushes you on a trajectory that may not be your own. And oh. so for me, composition study was a long process of going on multiple trajectories that weren't my own. And it took me a long time um, to kind of find my own voice and figure out where I fit um, in the field and, and as a composer. And like, I'm still just figuring that out. I'm kind of in the, the last couple of years have really been uh, a creative boon for me. And it's been in a radically different direction. One of your adjectives you gave me was searching. So is that, is that kind of, what you've been searching for is where you should be going? Yeah, I think, I think voice is really important. And, you know, maybe um, I don't have it all figured out. I don't want to pretend like I have it all figured out. But with my students, you know, I try to, from the beginning, to, you know, uh, set my own aesthetic, uh, you know, desires and sort of trajectories for them aside. And that's hard. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's really hard because... That is we, really hard. We, yeah. we value those things. But I think I value their voice more. And as I've really kind of started to, to come into my own and started to really develop my own identity in the last couple of years, I've realized how, mu- how important that was uh, to my development that didn't happen in sort of those uh, you know, really intense years of study. And I want to get those to my students much earlier on. I think a lot of composers confuse voice with style. So when when you say voice, are you basically saying like whatever you are working on in whatever medium and ho- however the piece needs to go, there's a central DNA that is specifically your voice, right? So it would it would be irrespective of you know uh, if there were style considerations for the piece, but whatever medium I'm writing in, however I'm writing. There's a certain perspective that I bring to it. There's a certain, I think DNA is a great way to describe it. Um, Kind of a way that I see my creative process unfolding. And then that essence is poured into the structure of the piece or the forces that that piece is for. Uh, And I think that makes, you know, in my opinion, that makes for really compelling art. And I think people who have, you know, when I hear their music and, and, you know, you can kind of hear their perspective in the music, no matter what it is. Um, I find that music more compelling than, frankly, you know, writing conference pieces. Right. Uh, You know, the DNA of conference pieces is to get on a conference. It had, you know, it's a, I call it careerism music. Mm -hmm. Um, It's music designed to advance your career. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can write music for whatever you want. I'm not, I am pretty judgy about it. I'm not trying to be super judgy about it. Um, But it is what it is. 
it's why we go to those same concerts all the time. And it's why I really, um, you know, want to take my music and work on my and uh, on my, my creative practice and my teaching practice to move more towards identifying what it is that people do and making them better at that. And I think, uh, you know, in the three pieces that we're going to listen to today, you know, we're, we are really kind of uh, testing out that that idea of DNA because all three pieces you sent me are incredibly different, which, you know, it's, it's nice to see that coming from one person. So back to uh, before reminiscence, what is this piece like generally about for you? Um, it's, for me, it was a, it's a series of memories. You know, I, I kind of, I kind of uh, called it a, a Cajun conception of time where you've got sort of these really disparate pieces um, that are stitched together not necessarily through chance, but um, more through intuition. And so I was really interested um, in my doctoral study about um, structures that were set but um, quasi-improvisatory. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, totally improvisatory stuff uh, isn't really my thing. But I do like the idea of, you know, adding more chance into the process in places where it could make a difference. And so... In putting these sections of the piece together, um, there are five sections overall, and in between there, um, you know, the different, the way that the the sounds are layered and the way they're organized together in time, um, were mapped out on a graph. And I just went through and started picking things and stitching them together without doing a ton, you know, more. I would usually plan these things out a little bit more, and I decided not to do that with this piece to kind of let intuition play a little bigger role. And I really like that play. Uh, in most of my work between um, sort of set processes and then things that are happening in the moment. I think that's it's more freeing for me than having everything really strictly planned out. I saw on your website that there is a piece called After Reminiscence as well. I mean, how did these two pieces connect? So they were written at about the same time. Um, and After Reminiscence, <laughs> that piece has gone through a lot of changes. I've I've played it live probably 20 or 30 times, and I'm not sure it's ever been the same. Um, so what it is now uh, may not be what it was in in 2012 um, at that point, but it's the same kind of thing. And I think, um, you know, for me, there was um, uh, kind of when you start doctoral studies, I don't know if this was like that for you, um, you know, your, I think your music has always had um, a really good balance between head and heart in there. I've seen, you know, some of your work, that vocal piece I saw at EMM a couple of years ago that you did was just, was really stunning. Oh, thank um, you, man. And I think sometimes we get really wrapped up in sort of the intellectualism of it all. And, um, you know, we forget that sometimes music is really emotional. And sometimes intellectual stuff is very emotional for people too. And, um, you know, After Reminiscence has a video which have uh, photos of my grandfather's house that are layered together and kind of blown apart in, in this really dense overlaid texture and you have these um, you know chime tones that kind of come back and so the idea was sort of you know again to recall a time and place and uh, you know to try to get the audience to enter into one long moment I do a lot of minimalist stuff now um, that my wife calls sleepy music which I kind of like <laughs> a little bit I've got two children so I really do wish that I could sleep more so maybe that's a big part of my art at this point is just pining for rest right um, yeah but so the connection to there was like that's that was the next step um in the process was to get something that you know before reminiscence was sort of this intellectual recalling of time and place and sort of had these indeterminate sequences in it and then after reminiscence was a little bit closer to home you know it had you know physical things that that an audience could see and could read in the program notes that oh this hat this these images have context and they have meaning and then they could enter into that process too and then as the work has progressed up to we're going to listen to north shore you're going to we're going to talk about it a little bit later mm-hmm. on you know that's part of the new album and that's where my work has landed and and you know that is um i do think there's a there's a bit of sentimentality in that work and there's certainly like a desire to connect with the audience and sort of reach them together on a similar plane and convey meaning in a more direct way. Um, so that's sort of the, you can see those two pieces as part of a trajectory kind of going towards that place. And that doesn't mean that's where it's going to end up, but that does mean that's where it is now. You can always count on your wife for being brutally honest. <laughs> <laughs> I remember in grad school when I was making 
some acousmatic pieces. Um, we'd be in the car, you know, and it's cold in Indiana and the windows are frost over and she'd be like, I'm going to make a piece too. And she'd drag her fingers against the wind or against the window and it would make a big sound. And she's like, I don't, you can get, I can get a doctorate too. And I'm like, wow, it's, it's hard to argue with that. Right? It is. I mean, sometimes it, it really we say is. the same things, but usually uh, in the bar at night when no one's listening. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. That's good. Um, just one more thing about before reminiscence. What are some sure. of the sound sources you're using on this piece? So there's quite a bit of um, convolved vibraphone and cello. Um, so there's a lot of uh, cello and vibraphone samples. After reminiscence has um, has a vibraphone part, and so I took a lot of it from that. Um, and then there are some. Oh man, it's been 2012 is a long yeah, time it's, ago it's, now, it, man. It does. It I is. I should have thought about this uh, more. Those are the two main sources. Um, and then I used um, Curtis Rhodes Cloud Generator to granulate mm, okay. some, um, I don't know if it was the, I did some bowed metal and some banging on the vibraphone. If it was that, it might have been that and then something else. That's the little ting, 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 ting yeah. parts that you hear pretty frequently. Um, and that's it. It's a pretty dense piece. Um, there's, a, there's a ton of layers of sound files. It took me about a semester to finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, as far as that kind of, you know, I'm proud of the craftsmanship of it. I don't know aesthetically if it, if it holds up for me anymore. Um, but there's some interesting stuff in it. Well, that's always interesting. Like when you, when you go back to an older piece, like I was, I just got an email recently from, uh, this performer who had somehow played one of my pieces when I was in undergrad, I mean, I didn't, I don't know this person and I don't know how they got the score uh, because it's not <laughs> out there, you know, but yeah. she was like, I, Oh, I played this piece a while ago and I want to, I want to do it again. And, and it literally, it was something that I wrote 12 years ago or something. And I'm just like, Ooh, all right. Um, well, would you be interested in something new? You know, like, (laughs) but at the same time, it's like, well, that, that was who I was at that point. You know, there's still some things I guess I like about it. It's just, it, it, yeah, we're, we're of that age now where we actually, our pieces have some, they, they they're able to take a life or have a life of their own and you can't control it anymore. And, you know, I've, I don't know if this has happened to you, but I've gotten people, uh, other people coming to me with like, oh, can you write me a new piece? I heard this piece that's 13 years old of yours. And I'm like, <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I can write you a new piece. It won't be anything like what you want, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, you get a lot more requests like that than I do. Um, but I do have that, that kind of thing at some point. I think, um, you know, for me at this point, um, things have taken such a departure and they're so new and I've kind of moved more into this um, composer performer model um, than anything else and so that's been a, a really large part of my compositional identity so now we're going to listen to it and this is before reminiscence <laughs>
getting to that, you know, becoming that composer performer, it seems like that is, well, that is where you are right now. Like that's kind of what you're focused on. Yeah. Right. So why don't we go ahead and, uh, and talk about along the North shore. Okay. And, uh, this is, as I understand it, um, this is one of those pieces that you, is kind of meant for you to play. But right. I also saw it on your open scores section of your website. So yep. how does this piece work? What's going on here? Right. So um, two kind of two things. One, when I I'm, I teach at Minnesota State now, uh, for those people who are listening to the podcast. I know you have a lot of listeners because I see lots of uh, social media engagement, so uh, good I, for you guys. You well, guys are... the, I guess there's no way to know, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> if it's through iTunes or sure. whatever. Like we can track on SoundCloud, but I, I imagine that's only a yeah. fraction of it. So I hope I hope we have a lot of listeners. Yeah, you guys are doing a great job. Thanks. Um, what were we talking about again? Now oh, I forgot what I was going to say. Along the North Shore and open right. open scores. So when I started here, um, I had a, you know one of my uh, initial assignments other than teaching some theory and composition lessons was to start an electronic music ensemble. Um, and, you know, I have lots of thoughts on the laptop ensemble model. Um, and I have students, you know, from a, from a wide variety of backgrounds. And, you know, many of them are interested in electronic music, but not necessarily interested in the sort of art electronic music tradition. And, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't want to play a bunch of EDM pieces. So I'm like, okay, well, what can we do together? And so I, you know, through my social media channels and through as many friends and email lists as I could, I asked for pieces, and I got no pieces. I just got nothing. And when I'd ask people for pieces, I'd hear things like, um, well, you know, you need this software to run it, and it's got to be compiled this way. And I'm like, man, I got a bunch of undergrads here who are new to this. Um, that's not going to work. And yeah. we're going to spend all of our time compiling software, and, and a lot of pieces don't travel well. And so... I was thinking, well, what can we do together? You know, I have people playing on, you know, pushes, doing Ableton stuff. I've got, you know, trumpet players playing through max patches. I've got, you know, vocalists doing, you know, a bunch of processing. And I want to do something. I want to make music with them. And uh, and so I hit on this idea. You know, we, we did what a lot of uh, people do. I think when they're starting off, they search for some open instrumentation stuff or some open score stuff. And and try to feel their way through that process. So we did what a lot of people do. We play in C, and we played Cobra, and Uh and we did a lot of those kinds of things. And then we very quickly ran out of that. I asked people for more pieces. I got nothing. I'm like, well, I should just write some stuff. Um, And so I had been working on these pieces for the album for a while. I thought, well, why don't I just adapt these for the ensemble? Take a bunch of the gestures that I'm playing uh, in the pieces and, and writing for the ensemble. And that's what I did. Um, and it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun playing those. The students really liked it. Um, you know, there's, a, there's enough structure there to keep people going. Um, there's enough in the, uh, in the score to interpret. And then there's enough space for it to be free. And so those three things were really important, that we could keep things going, that it could have some form, that it could have this progression through the piece, that there could also be some space to, to improvise there. Um, and so I... I have finished that piece as well as a couple others for open score. And then I just put it out there to, you know, my friends to say, Hey, I've got these open score pieces. If you guys want to play them. And it's been pretty amazing how many people were just like me looking for things for, you know, open instrumentation, electronic ensembles to play. Um, and so that's where that came in. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm doing right now too. So, <laughs> so I've got some pieces. For I you. know I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'm going to check them out now. Um, so when you, when you play this piece as a solo work, you know, does it, does it have a separate score or are you just interpreting from the open score? Like it, it can be realized as a solo work. It can be realized as an ensemble work. Like it's that it has that flexibility. Yep. So the way it's structured is, uh, you know, there's, there's an overall form in seven sections and then there's, I think on North shore, there's 12 different gestures. And so, you know, we, the way I like to have it done, you know, when I play it solo, I know exactly the number of times I have, there's like these repetitive gestures that happen. I know how many times I repeat them. I also have, um, I'm playing um, the processing with my soft step at the same time. So there's another, there's a, there's a several layers of performance um, that are happening in the solo piece at the same time. And then for the ensemble, 
you know, we do it a lot like the NC instructions where, you know, you're supposed to repeat gesture one five times. But you don't want to, you know, move at the same time as your partner because that would be boring. So maybe you'll play it nine times, right? And you'll listen to each other. And then I have graphs um, that come with the piece uh, that map out to, you know, two uh, or three minute increments of the piece that say, you know, here we'd love for you to use the gesture as a basis of departure and you can increase the amount of time that you spend uh, interpreting that gesture or kind of breaking it apart or playing cells of it or playing it in diminution or augmentation, those kinds of things. Or you can, uh, you know, kind of listen to the people next to you and sort of go in a different trajectory. And we try to keep, you know, the pitch material and the rhythmic material, you know, relatively small so that, you know, there's not, there's not a ton of room to kind of do whatever you want and go crazy, but there's enough room for you to listen to other people um, and play off what they're playing. And when you kind of create that space where not everyone's just kind of hacking at their instruments at the same time, where you're playing something and then someone else is playing something and you're maybe playing at the same time at some points, but, you know, like a real duet kind of thing, Mm -hmm. Um, but in the ensemble context. It's amazing when people just have that sort of limited material and uh, sort of mastery of that material and then freedom to listen to each other and be directed in that process, what kind of music they can create. And as an ensemble, um, those are our most magical moments together. When in rehearsal or in performance, those things just lock together and you know, you can just hear that everyone's on the same page and they're listening to each other and playing and responding and, and uh, you know, developing the gestures over time and having that arc and that form. That's a really beautiful kind of experience. And so I'm really interested in those kinds of things. And this piece, uh, it looks like, as so many of your other pieces do, it has a visual aspect, right? It, it has some yep. sort of video. So what is the video like? And then also, how did you get into doing video with sound? So getting into video, in my first Max class in, um, in graduate school at Georgia Southern, um, you know, John, uh, John Thompson is the professor there and one of my dear friends at this point. His, uh, his philosophy is like, well, whatever you're going to do, you know, I'm going to do it too, except I'm going to do it much better than, than you can do it. And so, um, you know, we were putting together these sort of introductory, you know, patches and kind of doing some things. And he came into class one day and said, well, I'm going to do this too, uh, except I, you know, I made an interactive video with it. And he p- pulled up the video and he starts playing this just short little piece that he wrote in a few hours, I'm sure, in his office because he's an unrecognized genius. And I was like, wow, that's really amazing. You know, I just love that video. And video is a huge part of his work. Um, And so it just happened that, you know, I got into it. And, you know, he was so great about helping me develop, you know, my own feel for how video um, should work in in the audiovisual context. And so then you know, having that visual component became a really, really important part of my work and remains a really important part of my work. So, you know, I'm interested in visuals that tie structurally to the music. So for me, that's really important, that there be some structural representation in the video of what's going on in the music or vice versa, so that there's a really clear tie between the two. And most of the work is um, abstract and non-representational. So I use lots of color, and shape and, and forms in the videos to kind of represent what's going on in the music. And is the video fixed or, or can that kind of develop along with the piece? No, the video is fixed. Okay. Um, if, I could, if I could find a way to do that live in the way that my very, very type A and control-oriented brain would allow, I would absolutely <laughs> do that. But, you know, I, I don't, just like the pieces, um, I don't want them to wander too much. So I like the idea of giving performers, um, you know, some freedom to do things. But just like uh, probably a lot of people in the audience, you know, I don't want things to just kind of go off the rails. I want to know that, you know, you have a plan and, you know, I want people to feel like I'm taking them on that journey. Mm -hmm. And so for me, not not that improvisation can't do that. I just, that's just not who I am. Um, So it's really important that those things that um, are really intentional be intentional does that make sense yeah i think so, so and video that kind of wanders and is screen savory is 
is kind of tough um, to stomach sometimes. Just like pieces that just kind of wander into the oblivion. Right? Yeah, you want right. to know that more than you can just code something that looks cool, that you can do something with it that also can connect. And in a in a piece like this, I think it you know having that video be have the signposts or have the structure already embedded in it. You're you're kind of doing you know you mentioned cage before where you're kind of making those empty glasses, but you already mm-hmm. know how you know you know what size each glass is, and it's like okay, we're gonna fill this glass with with this idea but then you know once once it's filled up we have to move on that kind of thing yeah and i'm you know i'm, I'm a huge john luther adams fan i just adore his work um and there's a lot of those kinds of things um, in his work as well and so that's been a that's been a very he's been a very freeing um and important influence on how i develop things to say that you know i can I can structure out many aspects of this composition, and I can also leave things for the performer to do in the moment. Um, and kind of that juxtaposition is just endlessly fascinating for me. You know, bringing up John Luther Adams, I I remember having a conversation on this podcast specifically about him with um, with John Sokol, and you know, we were talking about John Luther Adams as kind of a model of someone who we would love to be at someone at some point in our development just because it seems like he is able to to make those pieces that are either site specific or of extreme duration or extreme instrumentation and you know it doesn't like his it it's not going to negatively impact his career like we were talking about you know the <laughs> the careerism pieces where oh well you know I haven't been on a festival in a while I need to get on a festival just right. to prove to my committee that I'm doing the right things <laughs> and it's like John and I were you know John and I are both in our uh we're both pre pre-tenure and uh you know doing those types I would love to do an hour-long work but you know mm-hmm. how that that is site-specific that is but how on earth do you do you document it? How on earth do you get it on a get it on something other than, you know? So has in thinking about John Luther Adams has have those issues come up for you as well? Yes, and like you, um, I'm pre tenure, but I guess unlike you, I just don't care anymore. <laughs> like I've I've reached I've reached the limit, Rob. It's I can't. That's do where this you want to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's just, I've kind of gotten to the point where, and I'm not saying that, that people who do the conference think, because I've done, you know, a million conferences. Sure. I just got back from Mock Sonic, which is great, um, which you should try to do next year. Um, that's Eric, Jeff, and Elizabeth at UCM. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a great festival. There's a lot of great festivals out there. But you're right. There's that, there's that sort of academic pressure to have your work justified through a peer-reviewed process or a quasi-peer-reviewed process or whatever the case may be. Um, and it it does limit the imagination, which I guess shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised then that the conferences um, sort of are an expression of limited imagination. Mm-hmm. They're very safe in many ways um, and and not daring. And you know, for for John Luther Adams' work, I also aspire to his level of amazingness because I I just love his pieces. But also, there's a there's an honesty. Um, and there's a, sort of a bravery in doing those kinds of hour-long works. You know, he's that the heavily uh, environmental aspect of his work, the site-specific aspect of his work. He's got a really, uh, you know, amazing perspective, and it just comes through so clearly in all of his pieces. And that kind of identity, that kind of sureness of who you are, and um, you know, maybe not w- exactly where you're going, but the trajectory that you're on. Um, I think is is amazing, and that's that's really at the heart of what you know what I aspire to be. You know, I want to be authentic in the expression that I can make. I don't, you know, I don't want to sort of no toe to the, you know, the conference gods, so I can have twenty five lines on my CV as opposed to ten. You know, um, but that's not the world that we're in, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and it's a, I guess, to be people um, in tenure track positions, there's sort of a luxury to be able to say that. Um, and so I'm not blind to that aspect either, but, um, there's no question that that identity, if, if that was a higher priority, 
for us as a field um, that might change the way that people look at their music, and that would be a really good thing. So let's listen to this piece. This is Along the North Shore.
kind of returning to this idea of, you know, there, there are a lot of festivals out there. Um, yeah. I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about uh, root signals because this yeah. is this is one way I think that you and and also uh, John Thompson, right? Yep. The one way that the both of you have kind of said, well, it doesn't have to be this. We, we don't have to go to the same concert over and over again at at X number of festivals per year. We can do something different. So tell me about Root Signals. You know, how many years have you been doing it? And what's the, what's the general philosophy of Root Signals? So Root Signals is an uh, annual festival held in Georgia Southern University um, where I mean, it started off as pretty much like everything else, like sort of an academic, um, you know, art music festival in the same format um, that a lot of other people are successfully doing it in. We did two years of that, um, and then we did a Seamus in between, and the Seamus was enough to break us uh, entirely. <laughs> I should say, I should say though that uh, I'll speak for myself here. I'll let John speak for himself because I got lots of opinions, and I don't know that he shares all of them or even any of them. Uh, but that was enough to break me, and then. Um, starting last year, right? We just finished um, our second year of this new format. We said well, we want to work together. We want to keep doing this, but we don't. We just can't do the the sixty composer, you know, eight concert, you know, million techs and and uh, facilitating all those people traveling. We just can't do that anymore. Um, and it's not compelling for us anymore. We want to do something different. So what would we do? And I do think you know there is some craziness to the game of, uh, you know, traveling across the country. People fly all over the country, drive millions of hours um, to get to a place um, to play for five minutes. Yeah. And, you know, we said, uh, you know, we don't have any money, but we have a space and we have a time. You know, what could we do that would, I don't know if being respectful, but I feel like um, sort of elevating the composers a little bit more, not just kind of packing them in because we need to make a certain amount of money to make the festival even happen. But just you know, really valuing the art and valuing the people who make it, and trying to give them the best experience possible. And so the first thing I said was, let's let them play longer. That means there's gonna be a lot fewer people that are gonna be able to come because we just you know we don't want to do that many concerts. Um, but what if we give everybody you know half a concert or a third of a concert, 20 to 30 minutes to come and present a cohesive set of pieces or a long piece of what they do. Um, and then what if we you know, do the multi-camera filming, so we have camera crews that are running around to document that and, and produce some videos and have that sort of documentation as part of the work. Um, I think people would really like that. You know, That's not something that you normally get, so we wanted to do that. And then we said um, sort of the, the next layer of it, and this is how it's still evolving now, um, is there's so many great people making so much great art, and the festival is set in sort of a... A southern and a, a more rural location. You know, we want people to come to this. We want um, to eventually, you know, get some support to to bring people in and and to sort of move in that direction. And what would that? We still want it to be experimental. So, what would that look like? And so, we're in the process now of figuring out. This was our second year of doing it. Um, we're going to bring some more people on to to help us out, uh, dream up what it could be in the future. Mm -hmm. um, but we're trying to sort of shift the perspective. I wish I had a better answer than that about aesthetically what that looks like. I don't think, based on my past experiences, I don't want to, you know, sort of force an aesthetic perspective. We just yeah. want to find stuff that's really compelling. And it might not even be stuff that I like, which would be just fine because I'm not the arbiter of taste, right? And uh, there's a danger in thinking that, you know, here's our aesthetic stamp on the world and here's the kind of music we're going to program rather than saying let's find really compelling stuff and you know there's stuff that i hate that's really compelling we could make that work too mm -hmm. and i th it is it seems like you're getting a lot more you know you're not obviously you're not putting on tape concerts it's it's a is it almost all live performance it's all live performance yeah. there's no i think one of the we don't have when we invite, it's an invite festival. When we invite people. One of the only things I say in the emails: you can kind of do whatever you want, um, but we're inviting you because you're not doing tape pieces. You're not doing sort of the traditional instrument and electronic pieces. You know, that's there's a lot of places where that stuff can happen. Mm -hmm. um, but we want to do something else. We want to provide an alternative venue. And there's a lot of people. I've met so many people. I've been at a lot of festivals this year, and I've, um, it's been both awesome and, you know, terrible at the same time, right? Like everything else is. Uh, but yeah. I've met 
I've just met a lot of new people this year. I've expanded my network exponentially. And I've met so many great people who are just like, yeah, I don't, I don't do that anymore. Like, I don't do that whole scene anymore. They do a couple, they do what they need to do, and then they get out. I'm like, well, that's a real waste because the stuff that you do is really great, you know? Um, and so we want to facilitate that. We don't want... And I think the more the field fractures, the the less that the sort of Seamus ICMC, um, you know, uh, kind of big boys in the field, uh, as their influence lessens a little bit, and as the field fractures a bit more, I think we'll get more opportunities. I think more opportunities for more diverse perspectives is a good thing. Um, you know, people, there's a lot of people who will hear this and hear my perspective on tape music being, you know, 30 years in the past and like we shouldn't do concerts of that anymore and be like, that is horrifying and that guy is crazy. And probably both of those things are true to some degree, but there's room for all of us, right? There's room for all of us in a, in a larger conversation. And that's what Root Signals wants to be part of, a separate part of this larger um, electronic music conversation. Well, that that's awesome, man. And I've I've kind of been you know following what what you're doing there, and I think uh, well, you just you just had one two weeks ago. Two weeks, three ago. weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was I was seeing all the um, the Instagram posts, and I was like, oh my god, that looks so cool. So anyway, yeah, everything from hack toys to you know Holland came and did his uh, you know eight channel banjo thing, and uh, you know people sang and did sort of avant pop things on stage. Mm -hmm. Paul Botello came and did, you know, his awesome singing and video thing. And, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a weirder mix, um, than probably what you would normally see. And so that's the kind of perspective. Let's talk about your last piece. And this sure. is set me as a seal. And this is yeah. for choir and, uh, electronics uh, as well. Yep. Um, what is the text describing in this piece? So the text is um, sort of the, the famous, or, or I guess relatively famous in, in sort of Bible terms, uh, passage from uh, Song of Solomon. It says, set me as a seal upon your heart. It's a very common setting. I grew up um, going to a Lutheran school and singing choirs, uh, sort of in that traditional Midwestern Lutheran choir way. Um, and this piece was... Uh, there's a many, many settings of it, uh, but we sang it at one of the last concerts that my grandma was able to come to when I was in high school before she passed away. And so I wanted to set this text as sort of a, an homage to her. See, I told you all my music getting real sentimental. That's what happens yeah. when you, you're 35, man. That's when everything starts to turn. You get all I know. thinking about stuff. You got kids now. Um, and I, so I wanted I think to sort of. I think, sorry, I, I think it's the kids. Like the kids <laughs> might just really, the kids. really turn you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that might be it. I'm less hardcore than I used to be yeah. in my twenties. Uh-huh. Uh, so that that's a sort of a tribute to her. And so the you have these big thick chords, um uh again with this sort of more um contemporary uh, harmonic language, which has been a big feature of my work uh, recently. And then, you know, those same kinds of really drawn out processed electronic sounds. Um and this is a recording, I gave you a recording from, um, really as a cell phone video, I think from the balcony, um, that my friend Tony Steve did from uh, the Barn Dance this year in Jacksonville University. So it's the Jacksonville University Choir under the direction of Tim Snyder. And it was a really beautiful evening. Uh, they just did such a beautiful job with the piece. The recording isn't the best, but it's such a, it's such a moment that I thought, um, well, I think it'd be great for people to listen to. Yeah. So that's that piece. When did you, when, when did you write this piece? I wrote that in 2015, and it was for the JU Choir when I was still teaching there. Uh, and then I left, and I thought, well, they'll, I'll never get to sing it with Tim, because I kind of wrote it for that choir and for him to direct. Um, and then just by one of those amazing things that happens in life, so many amazing uh, musical experiences that you get. Mark, our good friend Mark Snyder got the job at Jacksonville, and he had the barn dance there, and it was just like the perfect opportunity to go back and... Um, do this piece with the choir and so that was just a really lovely moment that was a really amazing festival and i watched the video of this piece on your website and you're you're on stage and you're doing you're doing stuff so what are you controlling in real time right so i have control of this is kind of the way i like to do the electronic stuff i have control of four streams of the process and then i have notes where things kind of come in and come up so um, it's just a lot it's a lot like mixing stuff right i've yeah. got mixing notes so 
I've got these granular processes, I've got these time-stretched and uh, buffer-delayed processes, and I'm bringing them in with the choir. So when I write the piece, I have, you know, I'm kind of pinging things back and forth to the electronics to see what I could do where and what processes would work well to sort of supplement and expand the choir's voice, which is what I'm really interested in with the, with the live processing stuff. And Tim, you know, wanted to do it, he wanted me on stage, and he wanted to do it in the round, because that's something that... Um, that choir is doing a lot right now, mm-hmm. and that was a lot of fun. And just like a lot of other things, I really like to you know go with uh, people who have artistic vision. I like that. So he he's like, let's just do this. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's just do it. Um, and maybe it'll be amazing, or maybe it will fail. But um, it turned out it was just great. So let's listen to this. This is set me as a seal. And w- remind us again, the choir and the director? It is the Jacksonville University Singers under the direction of Dr. Tim Snyder.
So we're at the last question, the question that I always ask all the composers and artists that are on the podcast, and that is, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Mm. That's a loaded question. How much time do we have left on the podcast to answer <laughs> something like that? As long as you need, man. <laughs> um, I think people come to music a lot of different ways, and there's a lot of different motivations, right, for making music. Um, for me, it was just something um, that I always did, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I grew up singing and, and playing guitar and, and doing that whole kind of thing, and and that's the way I knew how to make music. Um, and I, that's how I made music for a long time until I found other ways to make it. And I think there's just something, you know, if you're, if you're a musician like me, there's just something that's, uh, that's internal. That's sort of an internal switch, um, that compels you to make things and to move forward in the process of disseminating those things and promoting those things and, and being around music full time. I think there's, you know, there would be there would be precious little reason to do it if it wasn't like internally compelling, right? Because it's a you know creation like this uh, from a composer perspective is a very solitary pursuit, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you're alone a lot and you're making things and maybe like five people are listening to it or maybe five thousand people or five million people are listening to it, but it's a you know it's a very sort of lonely existence in that way. Um, and if it weren't for that sort of internal motivation, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to to keep it going I think and you know for myself and for my students that's what you want to tap into is that level of authenticity and that level of drive that that makes you want to do things and so you know now that I've kind of come um, to a place where I'm I'm really happy with the music that I'm making I'm really excited about the direction it's taking and the community of people that um, you know I continue to surround myself with um, that's really taken on new life and and pushed me into new directions well that's awesome so uh, before we go, can you tell us where people can find you online and interact with you? Yes, you can find me. Uh, my website is michaeljamesolson.com. There's a bunch of uh, music stuff on there. You can connect with me on Instagram at dr.mjo. Um, and I keep my keep my Facebook profile kind of low-key yeah. uh, to uh, weed out all of the politics and craziness right I'm trying mm-hmm. to keep my life a little bit uh, simpler yeah. these days um, so those are the two primary ways to do it um, you can email me through the website if you want to connect uh, or on Instagram awesome thank you so much for doing this Michael thanks so much Rob appreciate it thanks for listening as always if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones please go to our website www.adjectivenewmusic.com <laughs>